Good morning again. Hope you're doing well. Okay. All right, if you would please turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19. I'll be reading Acts 19, verses 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, historical, and instructive word to our hearts and our minds and our souls. Let's pray. Father, let us linger in your presence by the Spirit over this text. Oh, as your children were in need, need to hear, need to repent, Daily. Need to see more clearly the beauty of forgiveness and the cross that we sang about with hearts and minds this morning. Need to see how trustworthy you are. O risen King Jesus, may we look to none other than to your sovereign reign over our lives through this passage this morning. Amen and amen. So here's the big picture of what I see here in this text. First, there is a God, the sovereign creator of the universe, who is all-powerful to perform miracles, healings, and do whatever He so chooses to do when He chooses to do it and through whom he chooses to do it. Then there's humanity. We human beings who try to manipulate the unseen spiritual forces. And these two polar opposites of God who is sovereign and human beings who want to be in control, are much of the history of the world. There are only two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness, kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the unregenerate, and the kingdom of God. As the Apostle Paul writes to the church, saying this in 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord or agreement does Christ have 
with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. There are two realms, two kingdoms in this present age. And in this passage, what we see is the contrast between the world, the kingdom of darkness, and the church, between those who are in Christ and those who are blinded to the truth. And we also see in this passage, and if you're in touch, this should be very encouraging if you're in touch with your own lives. We see believers who are in process, who are growing, who are repenting, who are being freed here from the practices like magical manipulations of the spirit world as they end up burning these occultic books. That's the beauty, that's the power of Christ that we see in this passage. But what's so sad is how many over the decades of my Christian life, how many there are of TV evangelists, Word of faith teachers who proclaim that signs and wonders and healings like we see in our passage here through the Apostle Paul say those ought to be normal in every church right now, today. Many TV, media, internet, evangelists have laid their hands on handkerchiefs and cloths and mailed them off to viewers who have already sent in their money promising them if they take that cloth now since their hand was laid on it, it'll bring healing from that cancer or the blind eyes or whatever else. A lot of the teaching that I sat under for the first five to seven years of my own Christian life was steeped in this man-centered sovereignty of manipulating the unseen world through incantations and confessions. Many for a century have proclaimed and do today saying, the miraculous healings that you see in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, you see through the Apostle Peter in Acts, you see through Paul, like in our passage this morning, those ought to be happening in true Gospel preaching or we are not preaching the Gospel as we should. The main lesson... And I want to drive home this morning for us is this. Get rid of any, not even that you're connected with a word of faith movement, the human being, all of us are tempted here. Get rid of the desire to control the unseen and the seen world around you. From health to wealth, to family, or whatever else. Get rid of the desire to try to control it through magical sayings, confessions, incantations. But instead, submit to the sovereign lordship of the resurrected and ascended King, Jesus. Or to say it this way, like our text does, allow the word of the Lord to increase and to prevail mightily in you, in our families, and in our church. So first, as we approach this, let's go back and get the backdrop here. After the day of Pentecost, the church 
It is built on the apostles. Say it again. The church, what it is, what it believes, how it is established, is built upon particular men. Jesus' own hand-picked apostles who were eyewitnesses to His resurrection. And Jesus sent them out. And as He sent them out, He sent them out with confirming miracles and healings and signs and wonders of that message. And we see that somewhat here and already in the book of Acts. But not even the healings and the miracles of Peter and John and Paul were on a par with what we even see in Jesus' ministry. Luke notes that even these miracles in Ephesus right here in our passage were extraordinary, even for Paul. Verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, literally in the Greek, there's not one word called extraordinary. There is a negation. He was doing no ordinary mighty works. But what we do see here in this passage seems to parallel what Luke already told us way back in chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The confirming signs of Jesus' hand-picked apostles as witnesses to His resurrection. And another thing to note about the book of Acts, other than... Stephen and Philip, who were working very closely with the apostles. Other than that, there are no miracles or healings recorded in the book of Acts that do not happen by the hands of the apostles. The purpose of these signs and wonders through the apostles is to confirm the message of their eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Think about this letter from a Christian in probably about the year 67 before the destruction of Jerusalem. So we're talking 35 years after the day of Pentecost. Remember the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish church. Here's a letter written to them saying, look back decades ago. And he writes, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared, what, this salvation, at first by Jesus to us. This is the land where Jesus preached. This is Jerusalem and Judea. It was declared at first by the Lord. And then it was attested to us by those who heard him. It's referring to his apostles. While God also, he bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles as they proclaimed the resurrection to us. What Luke is showing us in this passage is this. First, the Lord is sovereign He's in absolute control and he sovereignly confirms his gospel message through Paul as an apostle by doing miracles through his hands. Secondly, then Luke, 
Contrast that. He contrasts God's sovereign power with these money-making fakes who prey upon people's desperate desire for healing, for wellness, for deliverance. And thirdly, that showdown that Luke shows us brings the fear of God. And it brings further sanctification upon the Christians who were there as they repented and brought their secret practices and divulged what they had still been practicing and doing and those who were even working with others through it when all the money they spent on books, they burned them. In other words, what they were repenting of was otherwise known as holding on to their idea of being in control through magical incantations instead of God being in control. Okay, so if you're there, look at verses 11 and 12 first. Of those three, the first of the three, we see the Lord is in absolute control by confirming the gospel. Through Paul. And God was doing here in Ephesus extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, just note now where we're at next. Luke, he does not mention any healings or miracles through Paul since he was in Philippi. Remember, crosses over into Macedonia, he goes to Philippi and he casts the demon out of the slave girl. Since then, he hasn't mentioned any miraculous works of God through him. He goes from there to Thessalonica, doesn't mention anything, to Berea, doesn't mention anything, up to Athens, and then Corinth, and Centria, and then to Ephesus, mentions nothing, all the way back to Jerusalem, and to Antioch, and another year's journey through Phrygia, and Galatia, and all those differing cities, he mentions nothing about extraordinary works, or miracles, or healings through Paul. Why? I don't, I don't know. Other than he probably says, I've got the point across about the apostles. So he's not going to continue to say every time this happens. I mean, that's, that's my biggest, best guess on it. I did not say that there were no confirming signs and wonders and miracles in those cities. I didn't say that. Because we know there were. I mean, first of all, four years after Paul left Corinth, and it's even after his time here in Ephesus, right after it, he writes to the Corinthians and he says this to them in 2 Corinthians 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. That's Luke's way of talking about miraculous healings. Paul was doing that in Corinth. Luke didn't tell us that. But also notice the way Paul put it, because he is fighting against false apostles. The signs of a true apostle comes with signs and wonders. Real ones. And notice, in the text, it was not, in this sense, watch, it was not Paul who was doing the miracle works. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the agent or the hand. Of Paul. And then he, he 
You want to talk about how extraordinary? So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, these handkerchiefs, most scholars think, and I, I think probably they're right. It's really referring to Paul who is tent making in Ephesus, doing the same thing he did with the Corinthians. He didn't want to be a burden to him. He, he's working, he's sweating. And the handkerchief is just like you see a tennis player, you, you know, what do you call it? Bands, but you know, wrapped cloth around the head to get the sweat to not go down into your eyes. And his apron, as he works, etc. It's probably, and he's got a bunch of that stuff. Probably some can we just have that because we have sick people who can't make it here to this lecture hall that you're at every day. And so they took those rags and brought them to the people and laid them on them and they were healed. Just think about the woman in the crowd with Jesus and she reached out. and Jesus didn't see it, but she touched the hem of his garment that he's wearing. Power went out of him and she was healed. So anyway, that's, that's what's happening here. Paul had a calling. He was being used by God as an apostle for God's glory. Paul was not about building a following for Paul. He was pointing people to Jesus. You can see it in verse 20. Here's the end result of all this. The word of the Lord... The word of Jesus, the gospel, the truth, the teaching of Christ continued to increase and to prevail mightily. Not setting up shop like, hey, Paul the miracle worker. It's not what he did. And this is so different than the deceptions of so many in the name of Jesus who appear in large meetings and auditoriums and on TV promising healing for your cancer, for your paralysis. Go around the country and go around the world promoting untruths in the name of Jesus like if you say the right thing. And you allow me, as a specially anointed one of God, to lay hands on you, you will be healed. And if you're not, it's your fault. Your faith failed. You didn't follow the magic books of oaths and confessions and incantations. And now in our passage, Luke brings in the manipulative Jewish exorcist to show the contrast between submitting to the one and only sovereign God and being used by him, as Paul was, over against those who are in rebellion against God and use others for their own gain. Verse 13. Then some of the Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man, in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. These guys were in business. The business of spells and mantras that were connected to the Jewish religion in order to drive out demonic spirits, people who are very troubled. They traveled the world, the Roman Empire. They traveled from town to town and city to city, making a living. 
These brothers claimed that their dad was named Sceva, a Jewish high priest, which is not true. We know it not to be true because we have the records of all the high priests, and there's no one who comes close to that name that was ever chief priest. So either they're claiming some distant their distant relatives somehow their dad was to the high priestly family so that it gives more cred to their ministry or it was just an outright fabrication, a lie as a marketing tool to boost their prestige and get more people to hire them. Now in the first century there are records of exorcism ceremonies and how they would go about it which had to do a lot with the right kinds of formulas and saying, speak out, trying to get people freed of their, their evil spirits. See, that's why when Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews are shocked. Where's all the incantations? Here's how, this is what Luke says. Just don't, don't turn, just listen. But Jesus rebuked him, speaking to the demon, saying, be silent. And come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out having done him no harm. And they, the Jews, were shocked. That's what, they were amazed. And they said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirit, and they come out. See, these seven sons of Sceva, they had all kinds of oaths, and mantras, and rituals, and incantations, and sayings. And is there another powerful spirit we don't know about we can use? And they're in Ephesus, and this Paul dude is using this name of Jesus. That, that'll work. Whatever works, we'll, we'll take it. And so they would invoke names, and they tried this one. And as God planned it, it publicly backfired. The distinction between God's sovereign power over demonic spirits and the magical manipulations of human beings was made crystal clear there in Ephesus as the Spirit says, Look, I know Jesus. And I know that Paul is Jesus' servant, but you're not. That's what they're saying. You're in the same kingdom of darkness as we are. And the demon would not submit. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked, stripped, and bloodied, wounded, and this became known publicly to all the residents of Ephesus, 200,000, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was praised, it was extolled, it was exalted. Okay, that was really bad news for their business, to say the least. And that passage is really bad news for many religious master manipulators who take advantage of desperate people who are sick and hurting. Those who through their false teachings about the power of the Spirit Spoken incantation, the spoken word, and their claim that they are specially anointed to heal the sick, from which they extract a lot of money upon those they prey upon. This passage is bad news. Now or later. Here is, here's a quote from one of the seven sons of Sceva of our own day in the name of Jesus. Now this is a real shocker, but God 
has to be given permission to work in this earth realm on behalf of man. Yes, you, human beings, are in control. So if man has control, who no longer has it? He answers, God no longer has control. When God gave Adam dominion, that meant God had no longer had dominion. And so God cannot do anything in this earth unless we let him. And then, of course, they go on to teach you the mantras, the confessions, the sayings on how to manipulate God, the Spirit. That is not a little error. That's a blatant misrepresentation of Christianity, and it makes us sinful human beings sovereign. And it makes God our servant as if he were a genie in the bottle. If you just do the rubbing of the right way on that bottle, or you, you recite and confess appropriately the right words over that bottle, then God will do your bidding of your sinful hearts and what you really want. That's what it is. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, we know him. Very wicked man whom God used against his own people, Judah. And his wickedness got worse and worse and his arrogance that God says, oh, I'm going to show a lesson through him and to him. And God, in the end, was merciful to him. I think he was born again in the end after he was out in the woods going nuts and crazy like an animal. And Nebuchadnezzar says this in Daniel 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason, sanity, returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He does what he wants always and as he wills. Paul Unlike the seven sons of Sceva, Paul was not a pragmatist. It did not drive his ministry. He wasn't a pragmatic man who thought that the only goal in Christianity is to draw and keep more crowds. He had a big burden in his life like the other apostles. A big burden to bear. Read about it in 2 Corinthians. I mean, you can get a big head if Jesus appeared to you on the road to Damascus and gave you the kinds of visions and healings through you that are actual healings. You can get a big head. He says, he's also one of us. He's a sinner. And he needed to be humbled. And God's grace would come to humble him, to concentrate on who he really is as a man, as a sinner, and in his weakness. That is how Paul speaks about this 
stuff. So Paul did not sit there in Ephesus and say, what, they got healed from my headband? Wow. These extraordinary miracles. I can see the crowds are coming more. People want to be healed. They got sick loved ones. They want, to, they want stuff from my body to take to them. You know what? This arguing every day in the hall of Tyrannus, this reasoning with people who are so stubborn sometimes, and the unfolding of the gospel day in and day out, not only, not only is that that's laborious, but... Actually, the end result of that is a lot of people start to hear clearly what I'm saying and they run away and say bad things. Maybe the way to go is just concentrate on healings only. That's a new strategy. More action, less word, less talk. Shorter teachings and messages and less doctrine. Let's get to the healing service. It is not what Paul ever did. Paul knew that miracles, God can bless, and, and it is a blessing. We all get temporal blessings by God, whether we recognize them or not, that you're breathing right now is mercy. That you haven't died yet is mercy. And at times, people are miraculously healed from cancer or a relationship repaired. We can go on and on. God is merciful that way. But none of those things or these miracles we read about here in this passage save a soul. Only the gospel. And Paul knows that. Jesus saved many people in the city of Ephesus during this time, and He did it through the preaching of the message of Jesus Christ. And what Paul always knew was that same message that saves also causes a lot of rejection and anger from others, which here in our passage, we're not there yet, but as you read on, that message and the implications of it resulted in a riot of anger in the city of Ephesus. But Paul knew that words and teaching and proclaiming the gospel, he knew that that was the power of God unto salvation. Paul knows that it is through the foolishness of preaching the cross of Jesus that God is saving those who believe. Which brings us to the third segment of this passage where we see that the goal that God had, the goal of the signs and the wonders mixed with the goal of God's humiliation of the false prophets, the exorcist, his goal was to bring fear upon the city and praise to the Lord Jesus among many. Verse 17. And this, running out of the house, bloodied and naked, became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was exalted. And along with that, that fear was also meant to expose what many of the Christians were still trusting in. False metaphysical, occultic practices. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging, revealing, being opened about their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together 
and burned them in the sight of everybody. And they counted the value of those books and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. These professing Christians had the grace of God poured out upon them in the form of an appropriate fear. The fear of God that led them to repentance. They're watching what happened in God's judgment upon the seven sons of Sceva who were trusting in magic spells and incantations and ceremonies. It struck these new believers' hearts with how much they were still steeped in the power of words to control outcomes in life as opposed to Trusting, trusting the sovereign power of the Creator who is saving them in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's a mercy to the church. I mean, if you ask, oh, come on. Can real Christians, people who are born again, going to heaven, washed in the blood of Jesus because Jesus loved them, saved them. Can they really be caught up in occultic, magical mantras and incantations to control and to manipulate the world around them and outcomes that they would like? Yeah, obviously. Many of them. I'm getting sick. In the name of Jesus, don't say that. If you keep saying that, what you speak with your mouth will cause that to happen. Speak, I'm healthy, and then health will come to you. Oh, you're hurting financially. Speak to your bank account. Every day. Money come in. See, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And thank goodness some of you have no clue. And that's good. I am not overspeaking, am I? Somebody say, amen. He's not overspeaking. They're taught. True Christians are even taught. There are true Christians in these churches and in these movements who are taught by false teachers. That God is not sovereign. Your words are sovereign. And so here in this passage, they were convicted. Fear of God came on them. They took their books together and they burned them. And he put it in our day's money, it was $5 million at least worth. It was $5 million worth of we exalt the Lord Jesus. So let me wrap up this sermon then, saying this. The fear of the Lord is a good, good, good thing. And the fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was exalted. So the word of the Lord continued to increase. And prevail mightily. These exorcists were in rebellion against God. They were disobedient to the scriptures. They were false prophets. They were in the business of using whatever worked. They would try any new mantra, any new saying, any, anything that works and keeps our ministry alive. If one spell, one incantation is not working well, 
They're wide open to whatever else they can find. And they found one. Proclaiming healing through Jesus' name? Let's try that. They were not concerned about truth. They were concerned with whatever worked. They were the ultimate pragmatist. Pragmatism at its core is if it accomplishes our set goals. And this is in there whether they will say it or not. Without regard for truth. Then it's a good method. Our goals are met. That was the seven sons of Sceva. And we church people are always in danger of religious pragmatism. Large segments of the evangelical church world over the last 60 years has been using marketing techniques in order to draw crowds to our churches. And with that comes the pragmatic wisdom. <gasps> Tone down the hard and the difficult parts of the gospel. Put them over there. And only emphasize the feel-good parts of Jesus so that you don't scare off potential converts and certainly do not delve into any major theological controversy that has been going on for 2,000 years. Be smart enough to let people know you know about them, but never really come down on a side. Actually master the art of being interesting and master the art along with it of being ambiguous. So that you never chase people away. Get them angry. Because you have a position. And thus, never really feed the sheep that are actually there. And the key, the key is to keep the sermons really short. 20 minutes would be great. 30 minutes is pushing it. Keep them filled with interesting stories that particularly focus on how people can succeed in life. Theology is theoretical. People work hard all week. They want to know how to do their budget, do their marriage, do their anything. Just real life, make that your focus. Because that's what people want to hear. And the first rule of marketing is keep the customer happy by giving them what they want. And there are, some of you young people may or may not know this, there are lots of conferences for pastors out there right now. There are tons of books. There are seminary courses on how to do precisely what I just said. And they are flocked to. But I'm going to close this way. The words of the Holy Spirit remain true today as they were when he had the Apostle Paul pen them from 2 Timothy. <coughs> Timothy. Pastor Timothy. All Scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching and for rebuking and for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God, the preacher, the teacher may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this is where Paul now goes into it. Timothy. I charge you. Now Paul pauses. He wants Timothy to know how serious he is. 
as Paul is on his deathbed. Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. That's you, Timothy. And those whom you preach to, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom. Timothy, I charge you, preach the word. Be ready. Be ready in season and be ready out of season to rebuke, to reprove, and to encourage with complete patience in teaching. Keep going, Timothy. Then he says, the reason I tell you this, Timothy, is that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers, and they will find those teachers, to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The Word of God, the Gospel of God, the sovereign hand of our holy God, dear saints, is trustworthy. If you're His, He loves you in a way that none of us have ever grasped. So this week, go to Him. Sit with Him in the presence of the Spirit in the Word of truth. Let's pray. Father, You're good. Lord Jesus, you're wonderful. Holy Spirit, your presence is welcome. So now, cause each and every one of us, sheep, here, to examine our hearts, to examine our motives, to examine our sin, and joyfully present it to you now, before we partake of the bread and of the cup the cup of our salvation, of our eternal forgiveness, the cup of your enduring and everlasting care and love for us to the glory of your name. Amen.